Turn, if you will, in your Bibles or devices or you've memorized the book of Acts, turn there. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. I don't very often uh, state titles, but in this case, um, just to sort of capture the essence of the passage, I would say this passage is about true faith and true baptism. When you look at the passage and read it, that's just sort of what sticks out. So why don't we read it together? And I'm reading from the New American Standard. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he, Paul, said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. That's our habit when we have a baptism to preach from a passage from the scriptures on baptism itself. We kind of cycle through the New Testament and currently in the cycle we've come to Acts chapter 19. Now some passages about baptism are really easy. They almost preach themselves. The Philippian jailer, I mean, how can you mess that up? That's just such a great passage. Acts chapter 16. But some passages are challenging And such is the one before us this morning. So alas, I do not get to pick and choose. I have to take what comes up in the cycle. And so that is my assignment to open up this passage and your assignment to uh, uh, follow along and uh, ask the Lord to uh, be with us as we do this. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you, Lord, we're not left to go into our own prayer closets and figure things out and wonder whether uh, we've heard from you or not, truly. We don't have to guess and extrapolate from your creation to things that are uh, beyond creation. Lord, you've given us your special revelation in your word, and it tells us everything we need to know. To come to you, to know you, to glory in you, to worship you, to praise you, to come to Jesus, to be saved to have the victory we've just sung about that you have provided at Calvary. So Lord, as we look at this passage on baptism, there's some things in it that uh, in our day at least pose somewhat of a minefield, not a big one, but Lord, just pray that all of us would just be open to your word. That if there's things we believed and we encounter some things in this passage that challenge what we believe, that Lord, we will humble ourselves and go, gosh, it's not about what I believe, it's about what your word reveals. And Lord, we would uh, just embrace that. Lord, just pray your Holy Spirit would be with us, because he's the only one in the end who can shed abroad your love and your truth in our hearts. And uh, Lord, just pray that we will all be attentive this morning. 
to the authority of your scripture and be in your holy fear. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 19, 1 through 7 is our section, and we want to work through it a little bit and then make some applications, and hopefully I can maintain the time frame so that that will work out. Uh, I will try my best to get that to happen. So as we look at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, we read it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Luke, because he's a true historian, uh, he has one of, he, he, when you look at Luke, you find that Luke has all the methods of the best historians that were around in his day. Uh, there's been tons of research, tons of books, books written on that, and Luke is a legitimate historian, and nothing in the book of Acts has ever been demonstrated to be uh, misinformation about history. <clears throat> so Luke, when he's establishing, he's giving his episode, he gives us a historical context. And in that historical context, he names two individuals, Apollos and Paul, these are mentioned, and he names two geographical locations, cities, Corinth and Ephesus, these are mentioned. And so the context is simply this, we have the city of Corinth, which is in Greece in the southern uh, peninsula called the Peloponnesus. It's in the uh, Roman uh, province of Achaia, and so we'll see that in a passage, that's the reason I mention it. And the other city that's mentioned is Ephesus, and uh, it's over on the west coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. And the west coast of Asia was sort of richer. They were more upscale than the peninsula of Peloponnesus with Corinth and Athens. Um, So there's some significance here in that. Now Luke first makes a historical note about Apollos and his whereabouts regarding Ephesus. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so that's part of the historical setting, and so we probably should look at that a bit because Apollos can figure in to what we have to say. If we look at Acts chapter 18, a little bit before, just a paragraph or two before our chapter we're looking at, our section, we can read about Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, came to Ephesus. So this is prior to chapter 19. We're sort of doing a little bit of a backstory here. And here we're introduced to a very colorful personality. He is a Jew from Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was the second major city in the Mediterranean behind Rome. And so Alexandria was a, was a place to be and a place to be from. Alexandria had the second largest population of Jews in the world at that time. The first population or largest population would be in Palestine itself. A full one-third of the population of Alexandria were Jews at the time. And it's well-known, Alexandria was well-known for its scholarship. Like, you know, if you say, hey, I'm going to go to Greenville Tech, that's one thing. But if you say, I'm going to go to Yale, now that's something else, right? And so Alexandria was the Yale of the Mediterranean world, the MIT, uh, however you want to scale things. Well-known for its scholarship in the home of Philo, who died in 50 BC, which is just really almost around the time of this activity here, within a few years. So Apollos most likely lived in Alexandria along with Philo, who's just such a well-known historical figure, known for his scholarship and interpretation and things like that. So Alexandria is in Egypt on the Mediterranean Ocean, and we read that Apollos goes from Alexandria, for some reason, goes from Alexandria to Ephesus over in, in Asia. 
Now, if we look a little bit about Apollos, because there's, there's a number of things given, you know, a lot to, it's, a, it's a sermon in itself, but we're not going to do that. But it's just sort of interesting to go, Apollos is mentioned, so let's just take a peek at him. He's a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. He's an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus, and he's mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was fervent in spirit. And he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. So here's this guy who's a dynamic persona. He's cultivative, cultivated and impressive. He's someone you would probably wouldn't forget. They're just some unforgettable people in the world. And uh, I'm pretty forgettable, I think, but not, not Apollos. And the thing about Apollos that you noticed about him and what is said here, I mean, we could say one, one translation I was reading, it said, he was well-versed in the scripture. And so I looked at the Greek behind it like, no, no. He was mighty. He was powerful. If you just say he was well-versed, which is certainly true of that statement, that's bland. You know, that's like eating raw flour. It just, ugh. But if you're talking about he was mighty in the scripture, well, now you put some flour to get some sugar and you mix it all up, throw some cinnamon in, now you've got some pizzazz. He was mighty in the scripture. And that's what we're supposed to come away with. He was fervent in spirit. This man was a dynamic individual. He was full of the scriptures, and he was full of the Lord. He had an accurate understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, unlike many of the Jews of his day. He was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. All right? Now, don't be misled by that, because you might think, oh, you know, he was like a Bible teacher today. It's like, uh-uh, he didn't have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament. And so when he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, what is being stated here is he, talked, he taught accurately out of the Old Testament about Jesus as the Messiah. That's what we're doing in Isaiah, chapter 51 through 55, in our regular preaching. And so uh, maybe it'd be better to have Apollos here than bland old Steve, um, but that's what he was doing. So he was accurate as far as the Old Testament is concerned. However, he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. Apollos also had some significant deficiencies and limitations in his knowledge. The disciples of John had very likely gone from Palestine to Alexandria, where Apollos resided, and that's where he learned of John's baptism. Because Remember, while John is preaching, there's a big stir in Israel, and Alexandria isn't that far away, and it's the second biggest group of Jews in the world. Surely there was some communication, and that's how Apollos learned about John's baptism. And Apollos had embraced the message of John the Baptist and John's baptism, seeing it was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. He goes, yep, John is in line with the Old Testament here. And so he was probably accurate about John, furthering saying, you've got to believe on the Messiah who's about to come. He was accurate about the Old Testament and John the Baptist, but he was vague on a lot of details of the gospel and apostolic teaching. And so John was mighty in the scriptures, but remember those scriptures ended at Malachi for him. He had, you know, the message of John to go on. And so he had some things he had to catch up on. So Apollos was a confident and decisive. He had convictions that came from God and God's infallible word. We can read in Proverbs, and the fear of the Lord is a strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Or another place, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous is bold as a lion. Or again, he wasn't a reed shaken in the wind like some accused John the Baptist. And this generation doesn't like to hear about boldness. 
It really doesn't. If you're bold and, and clear, people start to think, well, you're, you know, you're being too pushy or this and that. It's like, we're, we're not here to talk about great ideas about Christianity or good ideas about religion. We are here to hear from the living God who made the heavens and the earth and all things in them. And his word is absolute authority. And so because of his personality, because of his clarity in the word of God, this man was in the synagogue and he began to speak out boldly and two people who are pretty much well known by most, Priscilla and Aquila, heard him. Okay, so imagine that you know, you're, just, you're just in the synagogue and you're hearing the scriptures and this guy gets up and this guy gets up and speaks and this guy gets up and reads Isaiah. And you know, it's good to hear, but it's you know, pretty much business as usual in the synagogue. And all of a sudden this guy pops in, this bold personality who starts boldly speaking and saying things you hadn't really heard before, but they were true. You go, wow, I read Isaiah, never saw that before. I read Genesis and never saw that before. And here's Priscilla and Aquila, who were Christians, who had been with Paul for at least a year and a half. They knew the gospel. They knew about Jesus. They knew the details of the gospels. They knew the, the, the gospel that Paul preached. They were very clear about Christianity, and they're, going, they're looking at each other going, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Like, man, he can open up the Old Testament, except, man, he's, just, he's missing some details. He's missing some of the issues. He's missing some of the clarity of fulfillment. And so they took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so that was a good thing to do. So Apollos is an example of different versions of Christian understanding. Okay, Apollos was vague on some things. Apollos was limited on some things. But Apollos did not represent a version of Christianity, some lost Christianity, as Bart Ehrman would try to promote. The true gospel is not the result of the early church power struggles finalized by Constantine. Here is this man, and he needs to have some clarity about the gospel. <clears throat> but he's corrected. You see, the Da Vinci Code and the postmodern deconstruction of everything into power struggles, that's what sort of holds the day in our generation, carries the day, and it it influences our concept of Christianity, and people can say, oh, look at the Vinci Code. You know, the, the true Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, is just a result of power struggles that Constantine finally came and finalized and beat all the other lost Christianities into the deserts and burned all their books, and that's where Christianity now comes from. That's true orthodoxy, and that's baloney. Priscilla and Aquila were there to correct a man by giving him more accuracy in the gospel. There's only one gospel. There's not any lost Christianities. There's the found Christianity that we read in the New Testament. And that is and always has been the only Christianity that God has ever presented. Variations always <clears throat> are seen as deviations and inaccuracies which need correcting. Now, Apollos, he wanted to go across to Achaia, where was the city of Corinth, and the brethren encouraged him and wrote <clears throat> to the disciples to welcome him. This was a time when you didn't have electronic messaging, so you couldn't text someone and say, hey, this guy Apollos, he's a really good guy. We trust him. He's been here. He's, he's you know, got good character and is, you know, really knows how to open the Bible. And you, know, you guys receive him and let him, let him come over there and minister. Don't make him spend six months trying to get credibility. We have already accredited him. They needed that then. Now, Paul didn't need it. He said, I don't need letters of commendation to or from you simply because they already knew him. 
But Apollos is a stranger, and he needed these letters of commendation. You just don't let anybody come and preach or teach in your church. And when he arrived at Corinth, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. His sound preaching and teaching and exhortation is always a welcome blessing to true believers. Always. But think about this unexpected phrase. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed or had believed through grace. This is just one of those places where an unexpected statement is made to demonstrate how Luke, how Paul, how the early church understood what it was, where it originated that you would believe in Jesus. He does not say who believed through free will. He says those that believed through grace. And you see these kinds of statements sprinkled throughout Acts. In Acts 13, 48, we read, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They believed through grace. In Acts 16, we would read of Lydia, the seller of purple, whose heart the Lord opened to give heed to the things that were being taught by Paul. She believed through grace. In 18.10, when Paul came to the city of Corinth, Acts 18.10, it looks like there's going to be trouble. The synagogue was starting to come against Paul. Before they wanted to hear Paul, now they're against him. And Jesus has to appear to him and say, hey, look, Paul, don't worry about it. No one's going to set on you to, to hurt you because I have many people in this city who will believe through grace. And these are just part and parcel of gospel evangelism in the world that we are to understand that people believe through grace. That's the foundation of mission work. Not through free will, but through grace. And that way we can get sent anywhere, whether it's Corinth where we're shaking in our boots because they're about to kill us. And the Lord says, nope, no one's going to hurt you because I have a whole bunch of people that I tend to give grace to in this city and you're going to fulfill your mission for me. So we do not believe through free will. We believe through sovereign grace. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. There's always opposition to the gospel. The first century was initially the Jews, later the Gnostics opposed the gospel. Today, again, the pseudo-scholarship of a barred airman and with lost Christianities and Da Vinci Code and scientism and all these things, false spiritualities. And what is our apologetic? How do we answer it all? The Old Testament. So when someone comes to you and says, you know, the early church sort of invented different Christianities and through this power struggle we finally arrived at orthodoxy and everybody else got suppressed. I mean, that's, that's what's out there. You, you turn on the, the channel on TV about the gospel and that's what you're going to hear. Bart Ehrman is a very bubbly guy. Certainly way more bubbly than I am. Very appealing speaker. And what do we do? We say, okay, you want to test some lost Christianity? Let's do it. But let's test it against the real deal. Let's test it against the Old Testament. Does it talk about the things we sing about? Does it talk about who Jesus is, the Messiah, who's going to come and die on a cross and rise from the dead the third day and go to the right hand of God and rule all the nations? Is that the message of this gospel, infancy gospel of Thomas? No. Well, then throw it out. Is that, the gospel, uh, is that what the gospel of Thomas is about? Not for a second. Well, then throw it out. Because it doesn't measure up to the Old Testament. It doesn't measure up to 4,000 years of prophecy in detail, 
setting forth the kingdom of God and the Messiah who's to come, of whom Jesus is the fulfillment. See, I never worry. I can stand up to Bart Ehrman any day, and he can out-scholar me all day long, for sure. But he can't out-Old Testament me, I'll tell you that. He can't out-Old Testament God. He literally doesn't have a prayer, for many reasons. But the fact that he doesn't realize, or won't recognize, or won't acknowledge that the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament, and it has a standard of truth that we can compare it to. So we have that old Apollos, who is probably really fun to have around, probably really fun to talk to. He's always probably had a smile on his face, always a bubbly guy and always fervent, always sober, but always joyful. He goes to Corinth. You know, that's, that's kind of a, gosh, you, you miss Apollos, all right? Things are kind of dull the next day. But while Apollos had gone to Corinth, they got somebody else. Somebody that wasn't maybe as bubbly, wasn't maybe as, you know, colorful. But you get the Apostle Paul, and he comes to Corinth through the upper country, they call it. We read earlier in Acts what had happened. He had left and passed successfully. He had, had gone on his second missionary journey. He ended up going back to Antioch, his home church. And then just sort of out of nowhere, in one sentence, he's like, okay, here's another missionary journey. And you read about 800 miles of missionary journey in one sentence. It's kind of interesting. If you went on an 800-mile journey, I know if Gwen came home from an 800-mile journey, pretty sure she'd have more than one sentence about it. But that's all you get here is you get one sentence that Paul left Antioch, his home church, and he again went back to, to visit the churches that he had founded on his first missionary journey. This is now his third one. And so Paul is working his way up through Cilicia, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, all those places, and he ends up coming through the mountains, not from the sea, but through the mountains, the back door to Ephesus, what's called the upper country, and there he found some disciples. Found some disciples. Now the term disciple is a usual, normal designation for believers in the New Testament. And so when you first read this, as he found some disciples, your first inclination would be, is he found a group of believers, right? And that would be you know, a realistic and, and good you know, perspective to have. Yep, he found a group of believers. However, we have to understand that not all disciples are genuine. The term can describe people who profess adherence to Jesus, but who in reality are not true disciples. We have the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. There's four different soils. Unfortunately, there's a lot of preaching in the last few hundred years that says that three of those soils gets to heaven, and I don't think that's true. I think only one gets to heaven. So there's the parable of the soils where there's different people responding to the gospel in different ways, but only one set of people respond properly. Respond in a way as to show and demonstrate that they are true disciples. In John 6, we read where Jesus speaks a hard word, if you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And it says, upon the saying, it says literally, it was a hard word, and many of the disciples turned away from him and followed him no more. They were disciples, but they turned away. They're gone. They evaporated. In Acts chapter 8, where Philip goes down to Samaria and he preaches the gospel and says a whole bunch of people believe, 
One of the people it said to believe was Simon the magician who ended up saying, hey, let me buy, you know, giving this Holy Spirit, let me, let me give you some money so I can get this power. And the apostles described him and said, you're in the bond of iniquity. He was a pseudo-believer. It says he was a believer, but he was a pseudo-believer. And given what we're going to find out about these disciples, we have to come to the conclusion that they most likely were not yet born-again believers. Perhaps they were being drawn, but they weren't born again, and we'll see that very clearly. Now, Paul had some discussions with them, obviously, when someone comes into your midst, this isn't the first thing he's going to say. Knock, knock, I'm Paul, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I don't think that's how it went down. I think he came in and hung out with them for a while, and as Paul is talking to them, he's starting to go, man, these guys... They're pretty vague on some things. And the more he'd talk, the more he would see how limited they were in their understanding, till at one point he realized, we're not just limited in understanding, we are deficient in something far more significant. These guys do not have the Holy Spirit. They're not believers. They're not born-again believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They professed attachment to Jesus, but Paul had serious doubts. Unlike Apollos, who was clear but deficient, these disciples, as they could be called, are vague and deficient, and they are too far removed from truth and reality, spiritual reality, for Paul to be confident that they've been born of God. It's one thing to clarify doctrinal deficiencies. It's quite another to question someone having the Holy Spirit. But that's what happened here. And they said to him, well, no, we haven't even heard that, you know, whether there is a Holy Spirit. Talk about a deficiency. I mean, Apollos knew all the passages in the Old Testament that said God was going to give the Holy Spirit. He knew about Joel. He knew about Isaiah. He knew about Ezekiel. It's all over the Old Testament. The coming of the Holy Spirit is not some new secret thing that just happens in the New Testament. It's got roots and foundations that go deep into the Old Testament as much as any reality the gospel does. But they hadn't even heard about it. They didn't even know about these things. Apollos did, but they didn't. And again, it will be clear from subsequent events that they not only did not know, but they did not have and possess the Holy Spirit. And Paul said, well, wait a minute, okay? I'm a little perplexed. You all claim to have some adherence to Jesus, and as I've been talking to you, I'm starting to realize it's a really vague adherence. So vague that I'm like, you don't even have the root of the matter. There was a woman who called the church a while back, left a message, so I called her back, and she said she wanted to get baptized. So I'm like, okay. That's interesting. Why would you come to our little church? Plenty of places out there that will baptize you. So I started questioning her, and as I talked with her for about 10, 15 minutes, it was very clear. Gwen, Gwen was listening. She, she'd vouch for it. This lady didn't have a clue about anything. I asked her what the gospel was, and she just, she wasn't, she, she just genuinely didn't know. She had just you know, wanted to be baptized because she felt that would get her closer to God. And so I started talking to her about the gospel, and eventually I had to tell her, kind of like Paul, it's like, you know, 
Elizabeth, I just don't think you're a Christian, and you really need to get saved and get baptized. And she didn't flinch at that. She's like, okay, but I'm pretty sure she really didn't grasp it. Anyway, the call went on and things happened. But that was the experience Paul was having here. It's like that lady with Elizabeth. The more I'd listen to her, I'd keep asking questions. You know, first I'm like, okay, why do you want to be baptized? And then it's like, okay, do you even know what the gospel is? And do you even know who Jesus is? I just had to keep backing up until I could hit some bottom with her common ground of where to talk about the Bible and Christianity. And that's what Paul is doing with these people. He's trying to get some common ground. And so his next question is, well, if you haven't heard of the Spirit, what was your baptism about? This is water baptism, folks. I spent 10 years in Pentecostalism. I got saved in Pentecostalism, so I know all about the teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've been through it. I'm not ignorant of it. And that's not what's being talked about here. It's to what were you baptized? Because the whole word baptism here doesn't talk about baptism. The Holy Spirit talks about being baptized in the name of Jesus. They said, into what were you baptized? If you're not talking about the Holy Spirit, then your baptism, your understanding of baptism is deficient. A lot of Christianity in America in the last hundred years has, in a great way, focused on the cross of Christ, but they've kind of missed the Holy Spirit. Everybody's too afraid of becoming too Pentecostal, I guess. I'm not afraid of it at all. I was in it. I know it. And he said, into what were you baptized? Because if you had been properly instructed about baptism, if you understood what it meant, you'd realize that the Holy Spirit was a gift from God. The fulfillment of the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would pour it out. What were you baptized in if you don't know this? They said, well, into John's baptism. So not only did they not know about the proper Christian baptism, they didn't even understand John's baptism, and so Paul has to explain it to her. John baptized with the baptism of repentance... That's the first element, repent from sin and turn to God. That's what repentant means. It just simply means turn from going in one direction to going in another. You're going away from God, walking away from God, turn and walk toward God. That's repentance. If tears accompany, great, but it's the turning that counts. John baptized with the baptism of repentance and, and you just don't repent and say, okay, I'm going to get my, my act together here and start you know, doing the things that, you know, I kind of think that God says I should be doing. It's like, no. You not only have to repent, but you have to believe in him who's coming after. Believe in Jesus who's coming after John. John kept saying, there's one coming and I'm not worthy to unloose his shoes. And he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. That's who I'm pointing you to. Turn to God by believing in Jesus Christ, his son, and get the Holy Spirit was his message. So hence, Paul is like, you don't know about the Holy Spirit? That was John's message. How can this be? Well, these were good people. These were good folks. They didn't go, ah, I just want to believe what I want to believe. Don't bother me with this or that. Don't be so doctrinal. Do this or that. You know, he didn't do that. They didn't do that. They didn't respond with just a skeptical heart, skeptical mind. They heard it. I'm pretty sure that there is more that Paul said than what's recorded here. I'm pretty sure he had explanations about a lot of things that for Luke's purposes, he just didn't record. And the writer of history gets to record what he wants. He's the writer. He's in charge of the narrative. 
What he's supposed to be doing is just bringing truth in and significance in that's representing reality, but he gets to leave stuff out and include stuff, and this is what Luke did, and he did it by the Holy Spirit. But whatever Paul explained to them, however he laid out the gospel to them, their response was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've been going through the baptisms, what we've been seeing is you just don't believe on Jesus, you always believe on the Lord Jesus. Some have said over the past hundred years there's been this idea, and I've never understood where it comes from or why, what's the motivation. The idea that you can believe on Jesus as Savior and later believe on him as Lord, the book of Acts will not bear that out. You will not get that from the book of Acts. You have to get it off of the sky hook because you won't find it in the New Testament. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to believe on a whole Jesus. They heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The response to the gospel was faith expressed in baptism. That's a true baptism. In the name of Jesus, who is Lord and Savior, and I get the Holy Spirit. So in case someone's questioning, what about the mode? Did they sprinkle? Did they do this? That's like the easiest thing to answer. The word baptize is not an English word. It's a transliteration word. It's been borrowed from another language. So in the English, baptize means absolutely nothing other than the content we put into it. It's a transliteration of a Greek word, baptizo. And baptizo, for several hundred years before the first century and several hundred years after, whenever it's used, it means one thing and one thing alone. Immersion. Now, that doesn't seem to compel some folks, but it compels me. When a word says immersion, then I'm going to immerse. If it said sprinkle, I'd sprinkle. If it said stand on your head and you know, dip your finger in water, I'd do that. But it says baptize, and if you translated it instead of transliterated it, we would read it like this. They heard this and they were immersed in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the only legitimate translation But because of various political issues going on, when the English was initially translated, they decided, so that we don't start yet another civil war in Europe, let's just use baptism, baptize, we'll translate it, and we'll let everybody figure it out for themselves. So they kind of dodged a bullet on that one, which might have been a good thing to do. But it's immersion. Now, here's where the minefields start to come in. I'm probably doing pretty good with most of you right now. But here's the minefields. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. I'm fairly certain everybody's good with that. Anybody here not want the Holy Spirit in your life? So, The Holy Spirit coming on you is, you consider, a good thing, right? It's a very good thing. It's like an eternal good. It's a good without which you will have eternal bad. But similar to Acts chapter 8, when Philip went down to Samaria and baptized people, and then a few days later, Peter and the apostles came and laid hands on them, 
And it said Simon saw that they received the Holy Spirit. So there's an inference there that some similar things happened there that happened here. But there was a laying on of hands and a reception of the Holy Spirit. But notice that it's a simultaneous act. Paul laid his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. Paul didn't lay hands on him. And the next day, two days, three days, the Holy Spirit came on them. It happened at the time. Something else to consider. Well, we'll get to that later. But here's the minefields. What happened? What happened when the Holy Spirit came on them? Did they just express joy? Having a real heartfelt sense, spiritual sense of the things we sang about this morning? My sins are forgiven. I know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I know them. I'm united with Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And all of the realities that that brings that's going to take an eternity to really fathom the depth of the love of God. To have joy at that, was was that as far as it went? It says here they began speaking in tongues. Is there another translation that says something different? Like Acts chapter 2 and like Acts chapter 10, they began to speak with what is called tongues. Some people call it glossolalia for the original language, but tongues is good enough. But what were these tongues? That's the minefield. What were these tongues? Well, in Acts chapter 2, it's clear that some of the tongue speaking that went on, if not all of the tongue speaking that went on, was a human language that's as clear as a bell in Acts. Because you read that all the people that were there heard from the 120 who were speaking in tongues, they heard in their own language the the mighty works of God. And when you read the list of all the people that were there, you can best believe, unless you knew 20 languages on your own, you needed the Holy Spirit to talk in those languages. And that was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was a miraculous work. People who did not know Scythian language or this or that started speaking in that language having never learned it in their life. The Holy Spirit came on them. And they were ordinary people. They weren't scholars. They weren't the cream of the crop. They weren't everybody that goes to Davos. They were just regular people who believed on Jesus. And they started speaking in other languages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, we know that there's a kind of tongue in which no one understands to actually use the phrase. Some people call it gibberish. Paul says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, it's not gibberish. might be gibberish to you, and he says that. If someone over here starts speaking in tongues and someone over here is listening, he's not going to have a clue what you're saying unless somebody interprets it. Now, this might sound like odd stuff, but this is how the New Testament functioned. 
You could actually go around to every place, every city, just about in the empire, where the gospel was preached, and you will find out in every city this was happening. We have an extensive statement about it in Corinth because they were blowing it, which will be my next exhortation. But right now, my exhortation is embrace what the Word of God says. You won't go off the deep end unless you stop reading your Bible, which many Pentecostals do. I know, I was there, I was in it for 10 years. The problem with Pentecostalism isn't the tongues, it's they abandon the Bible. And they substitute tongues and prophecies for the Bible, for the authority of the Word of God. That's the only problem, and it's a gigantic one. And leads them into all kind of crazies, opens them up to all the celebrity false prophets on TV. Give me your money and God will bless you. because they leave the word of God as the foundation for truth and the only authority for truth. Tongues are not an authority for truth. See, when you're praying in your prayer closet or just walking down the road and the Lord fills you with the Spirit and sheds abroad His love in your heart, I mean, He's showing you His love. You're like, this is really good. I want more of this. And then you start buying into deeper life false doctrine and get crazy and have to take two years to figure out that's not true because they promise you this all the time. But it's great to have the Holy Spirit come into your life and shed abroad the love of God in such a conscious way all you can do is weep before him. But that is not truth. That is not the foundation of truth. That is a personal experience. And your experience is not the measure of truth. Your experience needs to measure up to truth, not become the measure of truth. But to have an experience of speaking in tongues actually measures up to truth. It truly does. I mean, I not only spent 10 years in Pentecostalism, I spent the next 10 years in Reformed Baptists where they're telling me all day long that if you believe in these tongues, then you're going to be a heretic and you're going to abandon the Word of God. Well, come and hear Isaiah on another Sunday morning and you'll be going, yeah, he didn't abandon the Word of God. Not for a second. Tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 are clearly a heavenly language that no one understands, but it's not gibberish because the one who's speaking the heavenly language knows in the depths of their being that they're worshiping the living God. It is an absolutely blessed gift from God. Not the crazy stuff, but the real stuff. Now, I'm not sure when they were speaking in tongues whether they were the known tongues of Acts 2 or the unknown tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Don't know. We can't say. Really no need to say because it really doesn't matter. They spoke with tongues and that's what the Lord wants us to know. But I will say beware of dismissing tongues. Beware of mocking this gift and this expression of the Holy Spirit. The tongues of the New Testament are genuine and they are described as a great blessing. Some come along and say, well, now that we have New Testament, we don't need tongues. Tell that to Paul who said, I thank God with you, that I speak in tongues more than you all. And by the way, I wrote half the New Testament, or a third, however much it is. In spite of many learned attempts, no one has yet produced a compelling cessationist argument. That is, that tongues and prophecy have ceased. Not from the Bible. Now, they can have all their history and all their scholarly stuff, and maybe they convince each other. But people who read the Bible will never be convinced. 
once they realize what's being said. And there are several new passages that clearly present that tongues will continue until the Lord Jesus comes back. Acts chapter 2. The prophecy of Joel is going along until what? There's blood and fire and vapor of smoke. That is the language of the second coming of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1. It says, you got all these gifts of the Spirit and Jesus is going to confirm you to the end. The end meaning Acts 15, the second coming of Jesus. I mean, these are clear passages, folks. These aren't like, you know, sidewinder passages or stripped-down passages or manipulated passages. Then they were prophesying. What in the world is that? Well, prophecy is about God in general. It's not simply about the future. When we think of prophecy, we usually think the future. I know I do, and I go, no, it's not just the future. It's the past and the present and the future. Sometimes all rolled into one. That's why it's hard to try to figure it out. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came and they were speaking with other tongues, we hear them saying this. Gosh, in our own language, we're hearing the mighty works of God. What would that look like? What are these mighty works of God? The Holy Spirit's empowering them. They're speaking with other tongues, and in those tongues they're prophesying. So to be technical, there really weren't tongues at the day of Pentecost. It was prophecy, but I've had enough discussions with folks about that that that, uh, I'm fine with whatever they want to call it. But the point is, is they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's examples all through the Bible of this kind of thing, by the way. How about Moses in the Song of, song of Moses in Exodus 15? There's a song that's from the Holy Spirit just singing forth the mighty works of God in the destruction of Pharaoh. What about Deborah and Judges in their conquest of the armies that were against Israel? And she sings a song and just expresses the mighty works of God in that victory. We read about victory. Well, that was victory there. Or we sang about victory earlier. Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when she's going to have a child, she just, she just breaks forth in this song, singing the mighty works of God. You'd think, well, you know, Hannah's going to have a baby now. She was going to be singing about her baby. That's not what she sang about. She's singing about how great God is and how awesome God is and his purposes in the earth are going to be fulfilled. Hannah was, gosh, a theologian when you read what she says. I mean, her heart is caught up in the praises of of the grandeur of God and the grandeur of his kingdom and the grandeur of a future that will bring the will of God into human history ultimately forever. That's what they were prophesying here. The Psalms all over the place. What about Mary and the Magnificat? What about Zechariah? Both in Luke chapter 1 where they just sing out, they just break out in worship to God. That's what was going on here. We have tons of examples of it. Now again, when it comes to speaking with tongues and prophesying, beware of dismissing and diminishing. Beware of mocking and caricature. And remember what Paul had to tell the Thessalonians, because they were the sober-minded guys. We don't have all this emotional stuff. And Paul had to tell them, do not despise prophesying. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't do it. Prove all things, but don't quench the Spirit. What about the other crowd that I spent 10 years with? 
the Pentecostals who think they have a corner on it. I would say beware of wrongly emphasizing the gifts of the Spirit. It's done all the time. Do not treat the gifts of the Spirit as spiritual toys. I saw it happen and still see it happening all the time. Do not substitute spiritual gifts for biblical authority, ever. And beware of T-N-E. It's an acronym. I used to, for years, I was in debates on the internet with folks. T-N-E, tongues as a necessary evidence of having the Holy Spirit. T-N-E, tongues as necessary evidence. There's only four places in the book of Acts where these tongues and prophesying are recorded. One of them has to be inferred. All the other many, many, many instances of salvation do not record this. So how can we say that tongues is the necessary evidence when we have all kinds of people being saved, far more people being saved than we have in these four passages? And there's no tongues specifically associated. Now, we can't say that they're not there, but neither can we say that they are. So it's really bad to go to the book of Acts and try to use some historical episodes as the basis of your theology. And also, 1 Corinthians 12, 29, what's the question Paul asks? Do all speak with tongues? And the rhetorical answer is clearly, no, all do not speak with tongues. So when Pentecostalism comes by and tells you that they're speaking in tongues and prophecy, say, sure, I'm not 100% sure what it is, and I'm not sure I want an unsober-minded version of it. I'd like to kind of ease into it and figure out what it really is. I'm not going to mock it, but I'm going to be cautious here. When they try to you know, talk to you about that, fine. But when they try to talk to you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the second work of grace, you need this tongues as necessary evidence that you have the baptism of the Spirit. Just go, you are off the map, guy. You're just off the map. You're off the biblical map. And it's interesting that Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when? When you believed. Paul assumes that you get the Holy Spirit, the whole shebang. You don't get half a Holy Spirit. You don't get one-third of a Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit as a down payment of your inheritance in Christ when you believe. Within that cycle, that, that episode of you believing. I'm pretty sure a lot of you don't know the exact hour or minute when you were saved, but you know the basic few days. I know. I don't know when I was actually saved, but I know there was a few days where God was drawing me, and then there was a few days where I was in Christ, and I knew it, and I have no idea when I crossed that line. But I had the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're about. Now, it says, in all, it's about 12 men. Again, Luke does little numbers here. He's numeric. But 12 men represent how many families? Most likely 12 families. How many extended families? Okay. In the Gospels it says there were, you know, so many men along with women and children. But they numbered the men. And here the men are numbered and they represent far more than 12. And I'm guessing, I'm thinking that this is the first church really established, really, quote, planted, as we would say, at Ephesus, right here. Twelve families. That's where it started. You're watching the founding of a church. And they became a very sober-minded church in spite of their tongues and prophesying. They became a church where truth was 
such a significant issue to them, we read in Revelation chapter 2, that they had gone too far with that. They had replaced Jesus with doctrine. And Jesus is like, you do that, I got a big issue with you. So small body believers eventually extends great work as you read. Now, true Christians, true Christians believe on Jesus Christ. True Christians. There's a lot of people who are ignorant and vague about true Christianity. A ton. Most everybody I ever talk to, they don't really have a clue about Christianity. And I'm not trying to pick on them. They're ignorant. And that's not, you know, being mean to them. That's just descriptive. They really don't know what Christianity is, yet they are convinced they are Christians. The first component of being a Christian is to believe in Jesus. And it's not just an assent, it's not just to acknowledge Jesus or tip the hat or say, I did the sinner's prayer. What did Paul say if you're going to believe on Jesus? He said, go get baptized, because baptized has meaning. He doesn't say go to a sinner's prayer. And if we wonder why there might be some anemia in modern Christendom, it's because we've replaced baptism with a sinner's prayer. Believing in Jesus is embracing Jesus Christ from the heart. It's embracing his entire person, his entire work. It's to embrace him as Lord and Savior. It's to embrace Christ with your whole heart, to embrace Jesus Christ as your new center of gravity. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us or is operative in our lives, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all. Why? Why did Jesus die? so that they that live might no longer live for themselves. Are you living for yourself? Is your Christianity merely cultural? Is your Christianity just one of a number of things that's in your life? Or do you live for Jesus Christ? Do you live unto him who died and rose again on your behalf? That's faith. We're to believe on Jesus we're also to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a blessing, a gift from God. The Holy Spirit is the dynamic of the Christian life. The Holy Spirit in our lives is the true evidence of being in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. So the idea that the baptism is some second work is just, just doesn't fit the evidence of the Bible. But there must be true evidence. There must be the personal fruit of holiness in one's life. Not tongues as the necessary evidence, but true personal fruit. True living unto the Lord. And there's a fruit of the Spirit. You all most likely know that passage. And get baptized. Baptism is not a ritual that confers grace, but baptism is an obedient expression of faith and adherence to Jesus. Can you be saved without baptism? You sure can. Can you be obedient without baptism? You cannot. So it won't save you, but it will certainly be a declaration that will put a smile on God your Father's face when you do it. So when you look in the spiritual mirror, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Do you have the Holy Spirit operative in your life, the fruit of the Spirit? As Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will take the things of mine and show them to you so that your greatest excitement is to know the Lord, to find some treasure in the Bible that the Holy Spirit shines on and it becomes yours. You and Jesus got this. A whole bunch of other people got it too, but you and Jesus got it. He's at the right hand of God. That's amazing. He died for my sin and rose. His resurrection is powerful. That's amazing. I mean, these things grip your soul. And have you been baptized? I guess is the question. Like in Acts, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said, what shall we do? If you hear these things about true Christianity versus, I don't know, being vague and distant and the question having to be asked, do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you going to answer that question? Are you going to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? When we pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne, and we just thank you for, again, for your word, that we have something that controls truth. There's things about it we do understand, things about it we don't, but for sure it's your word, and it pierces the heart, and it separates between uh, the very bones of our soul. Lord, we've read today about some people who were certainly wanting to be followers of Jesus, but they just were so vague and so unclear and so distant from the realities that the gospel brings that Paul had to just basically say, you are not Christians. You do not have the Holy Spirit, and you need to be saved. You need to get baptized, and you need to follow the Lord. Lord, if there's any here in that condition, just pray you'd speak to their hearts. I've done everything I can to speak. You're the only one who can ultimately speak life. You're the only one who can ultimately enable a person to believe through grace. Lord, just pray you'd bring that blessing. Lord Jesus, you came into the world to save sinners. We're all a pack of sinners here. We're all dirtball sinners. We are all in need of salvation because we can't save ourselves, not for a second. Even when we get saved, we, we spend day to day to day lamenting our remaining sin that we have to wrestle with and... Uh, failures that we lament. Before we were saved, we didn't lament the failures. After we're saved, we do. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Lord, just pray you'd bring salvation to lives here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.